I'd like to read to you from Luke's gospel, the 23rd chapter, starting in verse 32. Two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. Jesus has endured so much at this point in the story already. If you think about it, he's been scorned, beaten, whipped with a cat of nine tails. The process of crucifixion has begun. In fact, verse 33 says, when they arrived, they crucified him. And we might think that that means that the act in itself was finished, but it's not, it's just starting. In fact, what's happened is they have nailed his feet to the cross, his hands to the cross, and they have set that cross in probably some type of hole so that it stands up. And immediately what has happened in the process is Jesus being nailed to the cross has fulfilled the prophecy in which he said, if I am lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. In between labored breaths, the savior of the world hangs on the cross beneath a sign mocking the very king that he is. Here is the king of the Jews. He would have seen a lot of different faces in the crowd. Each time he raised up to take a breath and raised his head, because that's what crucifixion is. You must raise from your legs to draw breath. You can imagine him raising up and seeing out in that crowd people who had been at the trials that he had endured. People who had said that you are not the son of God. There would have been people crying out and mocking him even still. There would have been his family there. The scripture records that his mother was there. Some of the other women that had followed him and the disciple whom he loved, John, was there. There would have been Roman soldiers milling about, the scripture says, casting lots for his garments, unaware of who he was because this was just daily business for them, going about business as usual. Callously, they're playing a game of chance to see who will take his clothing. And as the savior of the world hangs on the cross, all his five senses firing to relay information through the pain he was experiencing, his response to those who mock him is insightful for us. He does not respond in kind to those who would revile him. The scripture says he did not revile them back. He looked past the insults of his persecutors and he looked through them to God the Father and he prays not for their destruction but in fact for their forgiveness when verse 34 says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. That doesn't seem possible because how could they not know what they were doing? They, they've done this in, in a way that makes this prayer almost seem unfathomable to me. How could Jesus pray over these people? They don't know what they're doing. These people definitely knew what they were doing. They've had multiple opportunities to have Jesus exonerated. 
They've had a chance to exchange his life for a known and convicted criminal, Barabbas. They hated him and he loved them. They despised him and he cherished them. In these words, Jesus fulfills his own commandment to us and his disciples, found in Matthew chapter five, verses 43 through 45. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Theologians love to argue over the most minuscule details in scripture and I gotta be honest, I read this scripture and I marvel that Jesus prays for people, but theologians take us to task about this. Who was he praying for? He couldn't have possibly been praying for the Jews, could he? Because they knew what they were doing. It must have been the Romans because they don't know what they're doing. And yet that doesn't seem right because Jesus prays for them both. And he prays for us who years later would in our own hearts scream, crucify him, crucify him as they did. In fact, the Jews did know what they were doing and at the same time they didn't know what they were doing. They understood they wanted him to die, but they failed to see the bigger picture. In fact, in Acts chapter four and verse 17, Peter's preaching and he lays the culpability for Jesus' death at the feet of the Jews and then says, but you did it in ignorance. You're responsible, but you did it in ignorance. Paul speaks about sins and trespasses in the same way in Ephesians chapter two, verses one and two. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. When you and I hear the word trespasses and sins, we understand that there's a slight difference there, isn't there? A trespass is a line that's out there and you understand that to cross it means that you have done something wrong. You've crossed the line. Being a person who has now lived in Nashville for many years, but being in East Tennessean at heart, I must relate to you one of the great ironies of being in East Tennessean. All over the places where I grew up, there were no trespassing signs. In places, no one would want to ever trespass. I often marveled at the fact I've never seen a no trespassing sign that made me go, you know, I think I want to though. Because most of the time, the place was filled with nothing but junk. But a trespass is a warning. And when you cross that line, you have now clearly taken a step to do that. When we talk about sins, we talk about two different types of sins, don't we? Sins of commission and sins of omission. There are things that I commit doing. I, I know that I'm doing. I'm tempted to do this and I willfully join the tempter and revel in it. It's good, I like it, it's fun, until it's not. But sins of omission are different, aren't they? They're things that as we grow in the Lord, sometimes we begin to find ourselves going, ooh, I didn't know about that one. I need to reframe my life in such a way to bring it into, into kind of that perfect righteousness of Christ because I'm outside of that. And that's exactly what Peter describes when he says, you knew what you were doing and you're culpable, but you did it in ignorance. Paul is clearly shifting our thinking to understand sin. 
He says, we are just like the Jews and the Romans of that day. We're quite oblivious to some of these sins. We are, in essence, blind to them. And Jesus prays for the Father to forgive these people who stand in front of him. And as he does it, I want you to think about something that takes place. Because it may be one of the only times that a prayer that Jesus prayed is about to be fulfilled. He prays this, Father, forgive them. And in just a few verses later, he's going to give up his spirit and answer that prayer. When he gives up his spirit, he becomes our forgiveness. The way that we can come back to the Father. It's impossible for us to attain a relationship with the Father without Christ the Son dying for us in our place so that there might be forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, the scripture says, there is no forgiveness of sins. It doesn't work. And so on that day, Jesus prays this for them, and then he becomes the answer to his own prayer. The scripture says that he ever intercedes for us. It says that he sits at the right hand of the Father pleading for us, pleading forgiveness for us. And so when we see Jesus say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. How many times has he said that over our lives? Oh, Lord God, forgive him. He doesn't know what he's doing. The implications of this aren't registering in his mind or her mind. God, forgive them. God, they're one of ours. I plead the cross over them. I plead my blood over them. Forgive them. That's what the cross is. This terrible display that is all at once beautiful for us. Because when we see it, what we see is those of us standing in the crowd who thought we were close to Jesus. I mean, he's praying this over his mother. He's praying it over the disciple whom he loved. Because if he doesn't die, he's just a teacher. And if he dies and doesn't rise, he's just a martyr. But instead, he accomplishes it all for us. In doing so, we now have access to the Father. And so the reason that we come and commemorate this night is because it's a night that changed everything for us. It's a night that ushered in a new era for us. Forgiveness is ours to be had. Now, here's the thing about that. You can know it, but you have to experience it. You have to come before the Lord and humbly bow yourself to the name of Jesus. You have to recognize that you are a sinner, you have absolutely crossed the line. And there are things that you have willfully done and there are things that you have unwittingly done in ignorance. But it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if we were led away by the spirit of the age or the darkness of our own minds. We are guilty before a perfect God. And so God in his mercy sent Christ to die for us. And on the cross, as he shed his blood for us, he brings us access to the Father, the forgiveness of our sins. And so tonight, as we take the Lord's Supper in just a moment,
I remind us of this. I call our attention to it. Because we need to be reminded over and over and over again of what is ours. Because some of us, maybe this year, haven't been living like it's ours. We haven't been living like we're forgiven and free. Maybe we've been living like the prodigal. We thought we could go off and handle it on our own for a while. It's time to come home. Maybe you've never given your life to Christ. Nothing would please me more tonight than for you to humbly call on the name of the Lord and ask him to save you. The Bible says every person that calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's a promise. It's not in doubt. It's not a thing you have to hope for. It's a reality for us because of what Christ did that day. No man or woman made him go to the cross. He went in the obedience to God the Father. And while there, he was thinking about all who would come after and be saved. We have the right to be called the sons and daughters of God today because of Christ and his death on the cross. May we pray. Heavenly Father, as we enter into this time of commemorating the death of our Savior on the cross, we pray that you would be well pleased with us. We thank you for this bread that we're about to take, for the juice that we're about to drink, because it reminds us of the body and the blood of our Savior shed and broken for us. God, our prayer tonight is that if there be anyone who is far from you, that you would by your power restore them tonight. God, if there's anyone who doesn't know you, that tonight they would confess Christ as Savior and that you would save them, God. Would you do it, please? We beg Holy Spirit to convict those who are far from you of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. And let them see the excellencies of following Christ. Jesus, thank you for going to the cross in our place. Dying our death, bearing our burden, taking our sin, our shame, and paying the price for our freedom. We praise you tonight. In your most wonderful name we pray. Amen.